Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Welcome to the Learn the Word podcast, where you will be challenged to grow in your understanding of the Word of God and your relationship to the God of the Word, where we will discuss issues of Bible interpretation as well as matters of practical application. Now, here's your host, Academic Dean of the Word of Life Bible Institute, Paul Weaver. Well, on today's podcast, we will be discussing what is, in my opinion, one of the most misinterpreted chapters of the New Testament, that being James chapter 2. And to do so, I have invited a very special guest, Dr. Charlie Bing. Dr. Bing is the founder and president of Grace Life Ministries. Prior to this, he was a church planter and pastor of Burleson Bible Church in Burleson, Texas for 19 years. Dr. Bing is an adjunct professor for Chafer Theological Seminary, Grace School of Theology, and Grace Life Institute. He's also an adjunct professor for the Word of Life Bible Institute in the Philippines. He's written many different journal articles and authored or contributed to more than 12 different books. He earned a Bachelor of Arts from Washington Bible College and a Master of Theology, as well as a Doctor of Philosophy from Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Bing, welcome to the Learn the Word podcast. Well, thank you, Dr. Weaver. Uh, It's a privilege to be with you and with the ministry that I really admire, Word of Life. Well, Dr. Bing, uh, before we jump into James chapter 2, would you tell us a little bit about Grace Life Ministries? Yes, uh, it actually started during the time I was pastoring because I I needed some uh, way to do some literature projects and missions projects. And... um, but my heart really is is in sharing the gospel. And so those missions projects showed me the great need overseas, especially for a clear gospel and clear gospel teaching. So in 2005, I stepped down from the pastor and started Grace Life Ministries. And what I usually tell people is Grace Life shares the gospel of grace with unbelievers and the grace of the gospel with believers. Hmm. The gospel of grace with unbelievers, because you must be saved by grace, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And the grace of the gospel with believers, because believers often get off track with the implications of grace. They misunderstand uh, how amazing it is, and they get into a system of legalism or performance to find acceptance with God. They live under great burden, fear. They lose their assurance of salvation. Uh, I've met pastors who aren't even sure they're saved. That's Mm -hmm. a a great burden on my heart to make the gospel clear everywhere I go. Mm, That's great. That's uh, very important. I appreciate the work that you're doing and the ministry you're you started and are continuing today. Well, as we investigate chapter two of the book of James, would you please give us a little bit of the historical background uh, to this wonderful epistle? Yes, um, I guess most most scholars would say that James is probably the earliest epistle or one of the earliest epistles written. Um, there are several Jameses mentioned in the Bible. This uh, It's usually agreed that this is James, the brother of Jesus. A lot of Jesus' teachings are echoed in uh, the words of this book. And um, he wrote to what he calls uh, the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. Uh, early in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, 1, it tells us there was a great persecution in Jerusalem. And the, the, the Jews, the, the Christians, who were all Jews at that point, spread uh, to Judea and Samaria. So evidently, he's writing to these believers. And his, his concern is evidently having them practice their faith in their trials because he writes starts out by talking about trials and having faith and wisdom in those trials and that those trials are designed to make them mature or complete or perfect some translation three so his goal is a very practical goal it's that their faith it's not a theological book in the sense he's teaching of theology like paul but his practical goal is that their faith would produce uh, practical righteousness not forensic or legal righteousness before God, but practical righteousness before men. He talks about doing the nature of true religion, visiting orphans and widows in their distress. And uh, and then this chapter, chapter two, about helping the needy and the unclothed and, um, and why it's important to practice our faith. So he wants his readers to be mature and complete in their faith. Uh, and their faith to do what it is supposed, what God intended it to do to help other people. 
appreciate that point. It's a very practical book, as you mentioned, multiple commentaries that say before he was a, a writer, he's a preacher, right? One commander imperative for every two verses, something to that effect. Well, as I uh, previously mentioned in my introduction, James chapter two is one of the most misinterpreted chapters of the New Testament, right up there, maybe with Hebrews six. Would you agree? And if so, why do you think that this is the case? Dr. Weaver, I'm telling you, I teach all over the world. And the first question I usually get is about Hebrews six. Hmm. The second question I usually get is about Hebrews 10 or James chapter two. If I'm talking to a group that may have a lot of unbelievers in it, or have not been exposed to much Bible teaching, James chapter two is right there at the top three questions that is asked. And they always want to know if a person's work can determine their salvation. And that's the essence of their asking. And uh, of course, I believe there's a great misunderstanding of this passage that has put a lot of people in, into a, a, a bondage where they cannot experience the freedom that grace gives, which is to know for sure that we're absolutely sure we're saved. And, um, and then to live with that, that freedom to have that kind of relationship with God. Instead, they live in fear and doubt. Well, I often say to my students in my hermeneutics class that it's important to understand the big picture of a passage of scripture in order to understand the details. And Howard Hendricks, who was an incredible teacher of God's word at Dallas Theological Seminary for many years, uh, wrote the following in Living by the Book. When, whenever you study a verse, a paragraph, a section, even an entire book, always consult the neighbors of that verse, that paragraph, that section, that book. Whenever you get lost, climb a contextual tree and gain some perspective. I love that quote because it reminds us not to get lost in the details, that we need to see the forest from the trees, right? So, so before we begin investigating the individual trees in the metaphor I'm using here, help us to understand the forest. What is the big picture of this passage so that we can understand these details, the uh, chapter two specifically? You mean the context is actually important. <laughs> you know, they say a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. If you think about that, I'll give you a second. But so many people use James, like James uh, 2.17, faith without works is dead, as a proof text without at all explaining or understanding the context. Mm. And the context is everything. And that's why I like to teach this passage, because it's really a lesson in how to do Bible study. You have to look at the context and you have to look at the words. And you can't make assumptions based on what somebody said or what you've always heard all your life. Just do the study yourself and use the context. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the context, the big picture, James is writing to believers. There's no question about that in this passage. Mm -hmm. He calls them brethren and holy, uh, or my brethren, uh, over and over again, even in the passage we're going to discuss today. And in fact, he calls them brethren more than any other book except for 1 Corinthians. So, there's no doubt in James' mind that they're Christians, and he never is questioning their belief or their Christianity. He's telling them how to make it useful. And, and so you get a lot of uh, exhortations about uh, the things that they can do. And I think the key passage is in 119, where he says, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's kind of an outline of the book. Mm -hmm. Quick to hear is not just referring to listening, but referring to obeying the word of God. And then he goes on in the next few verses to say, uh, be doers of the word, not hearers only. So James has a very practical purpose for these believers in trials. Or how are they going to respond to the trials? Are they going to respond according to the word of God? And, uh, or, or are they going to be disobedient? There are consequences to both choices. Well, as we get into this chapter, into chapter two, in the actually the section we're looking at, beginning in verse 14, uh, the very first verse of the passage that we're investigating today, uh, verse 14, we have a difficulty to resolve. Uh, as you know, many translations read something like this. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Why is this translation and many others like it problematic? Yeah, the NIV says, can such faith save them? The problem with that is that is not in the text. There is an article before, in the Greek language, there is an article before the word pistis or faith. Um, and so they use that as 
their basis for translating it that faith, implying that someone says he has faith, but can they say so faith? Can that kind of faith save a person, a say so faith? Uh, that's how they're trying to get us to interpret that. The truth is, is that abstract nouns in the Greek language, as in some other foreign languages like French and Spanish, I understand, they use the article all the time, but don't translate it as such. In fact, in this passage, I think you see it that way in not only verse 17, but verse 18, 20, 22, and 26. Faith is mentioned usually in most English translations without the article. It's not called the faith or that faith. It's just called faith. So it's uh, typical of abstract nouns to be just uh, the article not to be mentioned or referred to. So there's really no basis or grounds for calling it that faith or such faith like the NIV says or implying that it is a say-so or false faith. Mm-hmm. So um, people of a different position want to want to give this idea that there's two types of faith, right? A saving faith and a non-saving faith. Exactly. And, you know, one thing that's really a point I think that's uh, very important to make is that when you have the word believe or, or uh, faith in the New Testament, we never find the word qualifiers. We mm-hmm. never find really believe, truly believe, sincerely mm-hmm. believe, heart belief. And when we talk about faith, we don't read about sincere faith or a true faith, a genuine faith or a heart faith. It just says you believe or you have faith, period. You either believe something or you do not. We don't find those kind of qualifiers that we, so many people have thrown into their translations and interpretations of this passage. So you and I would say that that would be a instance of someone not liking what they come across or trying to, trying to, uh, I hate to accuse someone of eisegesis, but um, making the text mean what they think it should mean. Yeah, and I think it is theologically interpreted, theologically driven, because there's so many theological systems that require works as some part of our salvation. And, you know, I think Martin Luther understood the Greek of this passage, which is why he wanted to throw it out of the Bible. Mm. And he had a big problem with that. He called it a straw, an epistle of straw. Mm-hmm. So Martin Luther recognized the Greek language because he knew his languages. And, uh, and, and to him, it was saying, yes, faith without works is dead. He just interpreted what death means and what salvation means in the passage, I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, with all due respect to Martin Luther. But one thing we let me add just this as an aside. Martin Luther was maybe the original reformer. Uh, the reformer has the reformation gave us a lot of great stuff but when did the reformation end when was the conclusive note of the reformation sounded are we still not reforming today and adding to the knowledge and building upon what they gave us and so even though this interpretation is going to sound strange and new to some people i challenge you to look at the text look at the context and uh, and see for yourself whether this is a good interpretation it's probably not the one that you've heard much of your life mm-hmm. Very true. I hope we can uh, challenge our listeners and viewers to to evaluate and be like the Bereans, right, who carefully studied God's word to determine with what he was saying was in uh, agreement with what other scripture uh, said. So we trust that as you delve into the text and as you listen to this podcast and this discussion, I think as we talk about justification, I think that's big, big part of it, too. Right. I think uh, Martin Luther Martin Luther's misunderstanding of what James was trying to tell us about justification. Exactly, so. yeah, because he was so dedicated to Paul and justification yeah. through faith alone mm-hmm. to be declared righteous. But James is not using it that way, as we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, when we come across the word salvation in the biblical text, we almost write right away assume that the text is speaking of eternal salvation. Um, but to an early Jewish readership, again, we've mentioned, you mentioned earlier that this was one of the first, if not the first New Testament epistle, such a usage may have been the furthest from their minds. Would you agree? And if so, please explain. Well, actually, yes, the word salvation, we often jump to the conclusion as Christians that it's salvation from hell, because in our Christian world, we often use it that way. But when you think about it, even in the English language, we use it in the English many different ways. You know, like uh, I need a textbook and my friend has it. And, and I would say, oh, he saved my day or he saved me from failing um, or that medicine saved me from death. 
So we use it a lot of different ways in English. Likewise, in the Greek language and the Hebrew, the word was used mostly for non, non-salvific or eternal life salvation. Saving uh, was the word salvation is used uh, for uh, being safe from uh, danger, safe from enemies, safe from illness, safe from some negative um, consequence. And only 36% of the time is the word saved used in the context of eternal salvation from hell in the New Testament. So just a little over a third of the time. So James readers had every every basis in their knowledge of the language to interpret it differently than we jump to the conclusion about it today as Christians. So we want to make sure that uh, we are not taking our theological understanding of a word and superimposing it on another text without understanding the context of this conversation, this discussion by James. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what do you think salvation in this passage is referencing and why? Okay, very good. Uh, Again, context is key. So uh, when we look at his preceding discussions, um, he's talking about the importance of being a doer of the word. And uh, in 121, he talks about receiving the word, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So he uses the word save there. Now, this phrase, save your souls, is also usually theologically interpreted as being saved from hell. But uh, in, the t- in the other instances it is used in the New Testament, that is never the interpretation of it in my understanding. If you do a study of that, uh, you'll see literally it's talking about save your life. The word soul is the word life, suke, in the Greek language. And he's telling them uh, that, and he had told them in verses 14 and 15, that the pathway of sin leads to death. And we see that also in chapter 5, verse 20, where he talks about there is a sin unto death. And, you know, you should try to turn your brother, pray for him and turn your brother away from that sin. So the natural consequence of a life of sinful choices is a deadening effect in this life, a distancing. And then death is always talking about some kind of separation. That's the essential meaning, I think, of death in the scriptures. A separation from God and fellowship, eventually a separation from the soul and the body and a premature death is the ultimate. Um, but I, I think that um, that so a lot of what he's talking about is the is avoiding the natural consequences of sin. However, when we get to our passage in 14 through 26, I think Paul is not only considering the temporal consequences of sin, active sins, but he's wants to talk about passive sins or sins of neglect, sins of omission. And he's pointing to consequences from those that can go beyond this life into eternity. And the reason I say that, Dr. Weaver, is because of verse 13, uh, 12 and 13, which immediately precede the passage. He talks there about those who are merciful to others uh, and those who will not are not merciful to others. And those who are not merciful will not receive, uh, they will be judged without mercy. Now, he's talking to believers. So the only judgment that believers face, there's only two judgments in the scriptures, really, the old uh, in Revelation uh, 20, we have the great white throne judgment for all unbelievers. And then throughout the New Testament, we have taught the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat of Christ. The only judgment Christians are faced with in the future is the judgment seat of Christ. So he's talking to Christians. If you're not being merciful to those who are in need, and remember, these are dispersed Christians who probably have a lot of needs as, as refugees, And if you don't show mercy to them, God's not going to show mercy to you at the judgment seat of Christ, whatever that means. It's another discussion. So he starts, he says that, and then he goes into our passage. But then I want you to notice that at the end of the passage in chapter 3, verse 1, and remember, there's no chapter divisions in the original text. He is switching subjects, though, obviously. And in chapter 3, verse 1, on the other end of the passage, he says, uh, not many of you should desire to be teachers, lest you incur a greater judgment. So he's saying that not many of you Christians should want to be teachers. Why? Because teachers traffic in truth. We, what we say has consequences. And God is going to judge us more strictly according to how we teach. He's obviously talking to believers there as well. So what I see is that this passage is bracketed by a judgment seat of the judgment seat of Christ and its consequences. There are consequences in this life that can uh, deaden our Christianity 
and, and lead to even physical death. And there are consequences beyond this life that impact our judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. So um, that's kind of how I, I, I frame the passage with those bookends in mind. Well, I think that's very helpful uh, as you, uh, you know, flow of thought is so important, right? The uh, literary context, we've talked about the historical context already, but uh, the literary context, what's before it, what's after it, as Howard Hendricks said, climbing up that contextual tree and seeing the forest so we can see the trees. And, and so when you're reading chapter two, verse 14, having already spoken of the judgment previous to that, that of the judgment seat of Christ, which is for believers, then verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can faith save him? You're saying then the faith there, we don't need to add the word that or this kind of or such, because it's speaking to believers. And so um, believers will face a judgment, judgment seat of Christ, right? And so not living out your faith will result in when we look at first Corinthians three, second Corinthians five loss of reward or uh, well, loss of reward and that being burned up uh, if we're not living out our faith. Is that, is that what you're saying? I, I think that is clearly in the passage, but I also want to point to the fact that he asked the question, what does it profit my brothers? So there's more to profit than just the judgment seat of Christ, because mm-hmm. if you don't obey the word of God, there's going to be some naked people and hungry people also mm-hmm. in the example that he gives. And so they don't profit in this life. You don't profit in this life. And then you don't profit at the judgment seat of Christ if you neglect to practice your faith. Hmm. So I think, you know, James has the whole picture in mind, temporal and eternal. So we don't need to add an extra word that or such or this kind. No, there's there's no basis for that. Not at all. Well, how does the illustration given in verse 15 and 16 support your interpretation? If, if you would even read those verses for us and then explain how you think that illustration helps support your line of thought. Sure. Uh, verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, this is the New King James Version, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? So there's that question again. What does it profit them? Nothing. What does it profit you? Nothing. When? In this life? And I think he's also implying in the next life because of the the surrounding context. Hmm. So he provides a a nice, again, you know, he's a good preacher, right? He's, of course, he's the pastor in Jerusalem. So he's given us a good illustration to help support his argument and help us better understand that. Uh, when we come to verse 17, after James' illustration of how faith is not being lived out, if we ignore our brother's physical needs, the text says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now, we have a lot of misinterpretation, misunderstanding of the word dead as well. What is meant by the word dead in this passage? Well, there are a lot of different, just like the word save, there's a lot of different uh, ranges of meaning or uh, meanings for the word dead. Uh, it can talk about physical death. It can talk about spiritual death, like Adam experienced in the garden. In the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. You will surely die, Genesis 2.17. It can talk about a deadening experience in our fellowship with God. It can talk about a, uh, a wasted life. I, I think that's what he's talking about in some passages. Um, what is he talking about here? Whatever he's talking about, death never means non-existence Mm. that I can find anywhere in the scripture. But that's the interpretation most people want to give it. Faith, if you don't have works, never really existed. Mm -hmm. So he's not talking about non-existence. For example, when you go to a funeral, which today, by the way, are often called celebrations of life. Mm. I've been to several funerals recently called that. It's a celebration of life. We're not saying the person never existed. Mm -hmm. We're saying the person's body and soul have temporarily been separated or they've been separated from us. But we recognize that they are still a real person. They exist and we're celebrating their life now. And if, if a Christian in eternity, so um, dead can have those different kinds of meanings, but it does not mean non-existence. And there's no basis for interpreting it that way. Can I just say, I have a, I've written a, about this in one of my books, Grace, Salvation, and Discipleship, and I've found seven different meanings for the word death. 
Very interesting. Well, the question is here, what does it mean? That's what we're going to get to, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in verses 18 to 20, uh, these are also very interesting and yet challenging. Uh, James introduces an imaginary objector. Would you please explain? Okay. The imaginary objector, uh, James uh, conjures him up because he can anticipate the objections of others. And it's kind of a formula that we see other places in the New Testament also, like Paul brings up an objection by someone and then answers it. Uh, so he says, but if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by your works. Now, that alone, that's what I believe is the words of the ejector, but there's a lot of commentators who have many different opinions about this. In fact, in the New King James Version, it only has the first half of verse 18 uh, in uh, quotation marks. But I believe the quotation goes through verse 19 because of James' response in verse 20, mm. where where he says, uh, do you want to know, O foolish man? And that kind of fits a formula for the objector in response and other places in the scripture. But what the, what the objector, I think, is saying is that there's no way you can prove your faith by your works. And he goes in to use as an illustration. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead to the illustration because it's such a part of his argument. Verse 19, where he says, if you believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Hmm. So... In verse 19, he uses the demons as an example of those who have a faith, and he's not questioning their faith. It's a real faith, but it, you know, the only result of their faith is that they tremble, mm -hmm. and their faith is in one God, by the way. Mm -hmm. Now, he says, you believe that there's one God, and, and uh, you do well. Actually, you could translate that, you do good. In other words, there's two different responses to faith, so it's, it's impossible to say that faith can prove anything Mm -hmm. uh, by by what it does, because the demons tremble, but you do good things or you do well. Now, many people have misused this first, so we might jump ahead a little bit to talk about it. And, you know, I, I used to probably use this myself at the beginning of my ministry when people said I believed in Jesus, but they're not living the right kind of life. And I would say, well, even the demons believe. But that was so taken out of context. And I repent of all of that uh, <laughs> from my past, because, first of all, James doesn't say that they believe in Jesus Christ. He says they believe in one God. Believing in one God has never saved anybody. Mm -hmm. The Muslims believe in one God. So uh, saving, believing in one God doesn't save anybody. Jesus Christ didn't die for demons. Demons' doom seems to be sealed from other scriptures we read. Uh, so he's not talking about faith in Jesus Christ at all. And it's improper to use it that way, taking it out of context. Mm -hmm. He never is questioning the demons' faith. Their faith is real. They really believe there's one God. He's not saying it's a false faith. Mm -hmm. And um, so what we see is that the importance is the object of faith, mm -hmm. not faith. It's faith in what? Mm -hmm. And faith in one God is what they have. So this, this is a passage people want to use to make you question the kind of faith you have or the quality of your faith or if you mm -hmm. really believe. Not at all what's intended here. He's not questioning their faith. Um, that's not, uh, they really believed and, and James for the sake of argument is giving them that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so if this was about salvific faith, the demons would be a horrible example to use, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yes, it would be because their, their fate is sealed and they don't believe in Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they have a genuine faith in God and that causes them to fear and tremble. Mm -hmm. And they the reason they fear is because they know that their judgment is awaiting them, would you say? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And and we as Christians, we believe there's one God and we mm -hmm. we do well, we do good, we try to please him. And we could give illustrations of that, right? We could say there are a lot of Catholics that do a lot of what we would consider good moral things. Um, but if they're depending on the sacraments for eternal life, that's not evidence of their, of salvation, right? So there's a lot of scenarios where you can say a lot of people do things that you and I might say are good moral things, but that doesn't affirm or negate whether someone is a believer or not. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Weaver, you know, we, we often will use the Roman Catholics as an example of those who say you must believe in Jesus, but you must also keep the seven sacraments. Mm -hmm. in order to be saved. And we criticize them for adding works to what we say is the gospel. Mm -hmm. 
And but when you think about it, there are many, many cults that do the same thing. The Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And I guarantee you that you will not talk to a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness very long about how to be saved until they bring up James chapter two and the importance of works. And that's why it distresses me so much that so many evangelicals jump to this passage as quickly as the cults and isms do to prove that somebody is saved. Mm. We are not proven to be saved by our works. It is impossible to prove you are saved by your works. It is subjective. It is relative. You know, and one thing, Dr. Weaver, in this discussion is nobody ever defines what a good work is mm. when, they're, when they're saying that you have to have works to prove your salvation. No one ever defines what a good work is. Mm. You know, the cults have good works, too, sometimes better than evangelical Christians. So what exactly is a good work? Yeah. So we want to be careful that we aren't making judgmental decisions that only God can make, right? We None of us know the heart of each other. Uh, and so we want to be careful that I've, I've heard that so many times and so often takes place. And I had a conversation, my wife had a conversation with a student, uh, not here in New York, but around the world, a different location. And, and uh, my wife asked her, what are you learning um, these days? And she said not, that not all uh, people that say they're Christians are, or she said, not all students are Christians. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and that might be the case, you know, then we're talking about Bible Institute, but she had really, um, I think, gotten way off track to start judging someone because they had a different set of standards than she did. And uh, basically assigning that person as an unbeliever because they didn't have the same uh, same standard that she held to. No, Dr. Weaver, as a pastor, as any pastor will tell you, we know that Christians are capable of any sin that is in the Bible. And mm. some that are not in the Bible. Mm. We know that Christians are capable of anything. Mm. Uh, but works are sometimes an indication that somebody saved. Mm -hmm. They can be evidence, but it's only secondary evidence. Mm. They can never be final proof. Final mm. proof is if we believe in Jesus Christ as and what he's done as our savior, the one who's given and accepts his gift as of free eternal life mm -hmm. by grace through faith, then we can know that we're saved. And that's what. First John 5, 11 through 13 is trying yeah. to teach us. Uh, we can never tell on, by a performance basis if we're surely saved. Mm -hmm. The moment we get into performance and evaluating what we do, I guarantee at some point everyone would lose their, self, their assurance of salvation mm -hmm. in that system. Yeah. How, how would you, I know we're getting, I'm getting off track a little bit here, but I think it's, it's fun. related. <laughs> how would you respond to someone that says, well, Jesus said, you'll know there are my disciples by their love, right? That, or uh, the, the fruit, you know, uh, by their fruit, about. you will know them. Matthew right. 7. Right. Dr. Weaver, that is another podcast. I've done a lot <laughs> of work in that Matthew passage by their fruits. You know them. You have to understand that again, we go to the context and what is he talking about? What is, first of all, he's talking to false prophets, hmm. uh, not Christians in general, not how to identify Christians, but how to identify false prophets. Then you have to understand what does he mean by fruits? Hmm. And I would love to develop this in context, but I'll give you a shortcut. When you look at Matthew chapter 12, fruits is talking about the words that come out of the mouth. Hmm. After all, the false prophet looks like a sheep, sounds like a sheep, dresses like a sheep, he says, but it's a wolf. Well, how do you know it, the difference? It's what they teach. And that's the test in Matthew, um, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. The test of a false prophet is what they teach, not what they look like. Nice. So not what they, what necessarily what they do hmm. uh, always. Works are important as one of, is part of the test, but it's mostly what they teach according to Matthew 12. Hmm. So that's a whole other discussion, but uh, yeah. it puts us in the role of being fruit inspectors, right? And it, which is an impossible thing, as you said, only God knows for sure. Yeah, and I think that's probably the verse that I hear most often quoted. I'm sure that's why you've done so much study on it. Are there any resources that uh, your website or something you might point? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To? I, on my website, my most popular resource is called Grace Notes. And they are two-page Bible studies on difficult passages or subjects related to salvation and grace. And I have two grace notes on Matthew 7 mm. and that passage. And then it's also covered in my book, uh, Grace, Salvation, Discipleship, which takes 130 difficult passages and tries to explain them in context. So then what do you believe that this imaginary objector is trying to argue? 
Well, let me try to simple, simplify it by just paraphrasing it according to what I understand. What he is saying is it's absurd to see a close connection between faith and works. You and demons both believe in one God, but have different responses. Hmm. Hmm. So it keeps it out of the area of salvation entirely, of eternal life, right? Talking about their their actions as a result of... Yes, yes. He's not talking about eternal salvation there among the demons. Absolutely not. What is the response of James to the imaginary objector? Well, uh, like we've said, his response is uh, uh, to think it was a foolish argument. Hmm. And um, he's in verse 20, he asked the rhetorical question, a foolish man, do you want to know that faith without works is dead? And then he really responds by giving two examples from the Old Testament. And those two examples are Abraham and Hagar. Mm-hmm. So uh, he goes on to talk about uh, the example of Abraham. And this is where the word justification comes in. And he asks the question, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? And do you know, do you not see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or mature. Mm -hmm. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him for righteousness. Mm -hmm. So in that passage, I think James is recognizing that Abraham was justified in Genesis 15, 6, which was quoted there, as is such an important passage in um, Romans and Galatians also. Mm-hmm. It's quoted, Genesis 15, 6. No question about his justification. But Paul was saying, I'm sorry, James was saying that the fact that he offered Isaac a very visible, uh, dramatic, practical side of his, the consequence of his justifying faith brought to maturity or showed people that his faith was mature. In fact, they were so impressed that they called him, it says in the next verse, uh, a friend of God. And he was called the friend of God. Well, who called him a friend of God? It must be those who saw what took place. Now, we we want to remember that this took place uh, on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where the Temple Mount is today. So it was an integral part or area of the city of Jerusalem. Abraham didn't go wander off into the wilderness to some remote mountain. He this did this very plainly and in public. Mm. And it, it must have been a great scandal at the time, but they must have respected him enough to keep their distance or whatever. And there were people, obviously, in that area who saw what happened. Mm. And when they saw Abraham willing to offer up his son in obedience to God, they said, this man has an intimate, close relationship with God. Mm. And he was just bringing to fruition Many years later, what he had done in Genesis 15, when he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, his, his faith was made perfect or mature. There's the word that comes up in chapter one, which is the goal that James has for the readers of this epistle. And in James one, it's about trials making us mature, or complete or perfect. And now we're seeing a real trial in the life of Abraham as a perfect example of that. I couldn't think of a bigger trial than having to sacrifice my child, uh, my only son. I have one son to to God. I couldn't think of a bigger trial or one of my daughters, for that matter. I have to include them, three daughters. So I can't think of a bigger trial. But I, I imagine you want to talk about the word justify here. Yeah. Uh, because when we read that word, as Martin Luther probably did and jumped to the conclusion that it was using it the same way as Paul did. Remember, Paul had probably not written his great exposition of justification through faith in Jesus Christ at this point. And so James was using the word in a different sense. And the word justify is used in different sense in different ways in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew eleven nineteen 19 says wisdom is justified by our children. In other words, wisdom is shown or vindicated to be right by what it produces. And Paul in first Corinthians four, four talks about others judging him. And he even judges himself, but he says, but I don't justify I'm not justified by this. In other words, he's not he's not declared right by other people's judgment or his own judgment. He says, but my judge is God right after that. And he's talking about just being judged for his motives and his authenticity as an apostle. Mm -hmm. And then then, of course, Paul uses it in a legal sense of forensic justification before God, where we're declared righteous. But James is using it, I think, in the sense of a vindication uh, to show something to be right. 
Mm. We know that Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis 15, but by his works, he was shown to be right, righteous. That faith was vindicated. That declaration of righteousness was um, vindicated or proved to be correct, proved to be right. Mm. So it's not a legal sense. And the other thing to note, which is very important, is Paul talks about justification before God. But Paul recognized another kind of justification. When we read Romans chapter 2, it says something like, uh, if, if Abraham was justified by works, uh, it was not before God. Mm. So Paul mm. allows for another justification, but just not before God. The only other justification must be before men. Mm. Uh, even in this even in this passage, uh, we have an indication of the two justifications, and it's in verse um, um, verse 24, his conclusion you, about Abraham. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. The word only there, grammatically speaking, in the original language, it doesn't modify the word faith. It modifies the word justify. So we, we could read it like this. You see that a man is justified by works and, and not only justified by faith. Mm-hmm. So the word only, again, manas, um, modifies or describes the word justify, not faith. It shouldn't be faith only or alone, in, in, the, in other words, if that makes sense. So what... What uh, James is saying is there are two justifications, mm-hmm. but the one uh, by works is not the only one. Mm-hmm. But you see that a man is justified not only by works, mm-hmm. but also by faith is mm-hmm. would be the understanding. Well, I appreciate that. A lot of good clarifications there. A lot of good points. Um, and at the beginning of this podcast, one of the reasons I wanted you to give some of that background information is because the book of James was written either first or certainly one of the first before Romans and before Galatians, before our understanding of justification in the way, just like salvation, we always think immediately we think when the word salvation is used, it's referring to eternal salvation. When we hear the word justification, we almost always assume if we, if we're not good, if we've not learned not to make these assumptions or uh, oftentimes we don't think what kind of, we need to answer the question, what kind of, and here we have, uh, justification in James is way before Paul develops the idea of being declared righteous by God. So we've got here James talking about Abraham being considered righteous or evaluated or um, thought to be righteous by his by not God, but men around him that see that Abraham's living out what he said he believed. Right. So. Yeah, exactly. Justification has a vertical aspect before God. It also has a horizontal aspect before men. Yeah. And so we don't, although it looks like a contradiction, and I think that's what Martin Luther never understood, right? This, this apparent contradiction. And, and uh, I think a lot of interpreters today uh, have, don't have a good explanation for this apparent contradiction unless you understand that there are two types of justification, right? Before God, before man, and it makes it completely clear once you do. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, many interpreters today, I think, fail to use, uh, fully appreciate the context. It's always context, context, context. And many of them follow, are following their theological tradition mm-hmm. or just their their verbal tradition of hearing it over and over again. And it really hasn't been thought through. Uh, but so many people are starting to discover what this passage means. And I see them, uh, their eyes light up and their hearts are just liberated by it. Mm-hmm. So we certainly want to encourage, I, I often tell my students in hermeneutics or in whenever I teach James or another book, well, like James, I think Hebrews and first, second, third, John, I think these are books of the Bible that, People bring their theological biases a lot, and unfortunately, in my assessment, I know in yours as well, they make theological decisions rather than exegetical decisions. Yeah, exactly right. Context, context, context. I'm a Bible guy. Yeah. And uh, I always tell people you should let, don't let your theology push you, let the Bible lead you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we need to go wherever the text leads us 
And it's it's so hard, though. You know, we we have affinities for particular denominations or particular professors or teachers we've had or theological systems. But we we really have to put all that and recognize, yes, we do have biases, but we need to do our best to take off those biases and say, I'm going to go wherever the text leads me. Yeah. And we all we all have biases. I come to the scriptures with biases and you do, too. We've been trained or uh, in a certain theological discipline or by certain schools and professors. We know that our job is to be as objective as possible and let the Bible speak for itself. Go back to the original languages. If we know them, you know all about uh, the study of uh, hermeneutics in the Bible. So we, we just have to be faithful with what God is saying, not what others are saying. So Martin Luther had a misunderstanding of justification, right? That's why he called it the book of straw. I think that's, pro- I, you know, I don't know without going back and reading Martin Luther right now, which I'm a little bit rusty on, but that's probably why he wanted to reject the, from what I understand, why he wanted to reject the book of James. I don't see any other big problems he would have with it, but he was so married to the idea of justification through faith. When yeah. he read the book of Romans, you know, he was converted and that's why he left the Romans uh, Catholic Church mm-hmm. and started the Reformation. And then here's, here, here comes a book that says you're justified by works, not by uh, faith alone, or only justified by works. And uh, yeah, so he had problems with this. Well, as we wrap up our podcast for today, would you summarize the big idea of this passage, then uh, help apply this passage of Scripture to our daily lives? Well, James, you know, last verse is that the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without works is dead. What he's trying to tell us, I think, is that we can we can say that we have faith all day long. We can know our faith. We can be we can be very knowledgeable, very theological and doctrinally correct. But orthodoxy is not orthopraxy. Hmm. And God didn't write the Bible just to make us smart. He wrote it to be helpful to ourselves and to other people. And so what that's what James concern is. And so what he's saying here is that works invigorates your faith. It energizes your faith. It brings it to full bloom and maturity. And he's not saying that that works uh, aren't important. Works are extremely hmm. important. We know that uh, from scriptures, we're commanded to do good works. And we're told in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that our, faith, our salvation by grace through faith, we're saved for the purpose of good works, verse 10. So works are very important, but they don't prove our salvation. Um, but the importance of uh, this passage, I think, first of all, is it's a good study in how to study the Bible. Hmm. Because I don't think it can ever be understood unless the big picture, the context is seen clearly. And then it's a good study in what words mean and how we should not take for granted that there's just one meaning for a word. Salvation, dead, dead. Uh, some of the other words that we might have talked justifi- justification, justify. So it's a good study in that. Uh, but also, you know, I think the major uh, significance of this passage in a correct understanding uh, is that it, if we understand it correctly, it brings assurance of salvation. If we understand this and other passages correctly, this passage is not saying that you can uh, decide if you're a Christian or evaluate whether you're really a Christian depending on how many, many good works you do. Uh, it's, it's not teaching that. And yet so many people want to teach that. And what that causes when it's preached from the pulpit that way is people will walk away doubting their salvation, which I've seen over and over again, to the point where even the preacher doubts his own salvation. I've seen that over and over again. Mm-hmm. I've talked to many preachers who said, I don't even know if I'm saved. Mm-hmm. It's a sad scenario that this is mostly overseas. So it brings assurance of salvation. And you cannot really grow in the Christian life. I'd say that pretty dogmatically. You cannot really grow in the Christian life unless you know for sure that you're saved. Mm. You can't grow forward if you're always looking backwards, wondering if you're saved. And James is not doubting or questioning their salvation at all. And we shouldn't use this passage that way. But I think the other importance of this is that James is telling us who are believers, like his readers, he's telling us, make your faith count, make it useful, make it practical, visit Orphans and widows, feed the hungry and, and the sick. Don't just talk about uh, Christians and theology. I belong to a lot of theological discussion boards on uh, on Facebook and so forth. 
And I watched the discussions. I usually don't participate in them, but I watched the discussions and uh, everybody wants to be theologically correct. And I'm always wondering myself to myself, how is that being worked out in your life and ministry and how is that being practiced? And so my challenge is to anybody who's listening is, yes, get your doctrine right. Mm. That's very important. Get your doctrine absolutely right. But God didn't give us the truth just to be theologians and theologically correct. He gave us the truth so that we could live a life that glorifies him, that helps others, that delivers us from a wasteful life or a sinful life, and that rewards us at the judgment seat of Christ. So there's a lot of significance in this passage for Christians and how we live out our faith. Well, and that's, uh, again, as you've reiterated a couple of times, this is about maturity, about Christian maturity, progressing in our Christian life and living out our life uh, as God intended it uh, in the various areas that this pastor, James, as he ministers to his flock, uh, dispersed uh, by persecution, possibly, and uh, seeking to help them grow in their faith and to live out their faith um, for men all around them. Well, our time is up for today's podcast. Dr. Bing, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me uh, for the recording of this podcast. I trust it will be a blessing to many. And to our listeners, if you've been encouraged and challenged by our discussion today, can I suggest you become familiar with Grace Life Ministries? You can visit their website at gracelife.org. Also consider purchasing Dr. Bing's books. I believe you'll find them very helpful to your learning of the word. You can find them on the website previously mentioned or amazon.com. At the beginning of our program, I mentioned that Dr. Bing is one of our guest lecturers at the Word of Life Bible Institute in the Philippines. Did you know that the Word of Life Bible Institute is in 16 different locations around the world? And one of the hallmarks of our program is our unique guest lecture program, where we fly in some of the best communicators and Bible expositors and scholars this world has to offer. If you or someone you know would like to sit under the teaching of great teachers like Dr. Bing, you can learn more at wordoflife.edu. That's wordoflife.edu. In just one year, you will study through every book of the Bible and every category of theology. You'll grow in your knowledge of the Word of God and your relationship to the God of the Word. Well, I hope you'll join us again next week for another great podcast. But until next time, make it your ambition to learn the Word. Learn the Word podcast is a ministry of the Word of Life Bible Institute, a fully accredited two-year intensive college-level program. To learn more about the Word of Life Bible Institute, visit us at wordoflife.edu. That's wordoflife.edu. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.